Good evening. Uh, for those who want to stay afterwards and glow a while, we have an afterglow in the, in the uh, fifth, new fifth grade classroom for those who want to worship, wait on the Lord for the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, we call it an afterglow. It's like a believer's meeting uh, for those who want to do that. Fifth grade classroom, the new fifth grade classroom after tonight's service. Now before we get into our Bible study tonight, it's kind of a special evening because a number of students here from last year's School of Ministry have not only completed their studies but completed their outreach. God has radically, in a revolutionary way, changed their lives, their outlook on life and their plans for life. And um, so we want to commend them, we want to pray for them, and we want to give them a graduation certificate that says they've done it. They don't live for the certificate. The certificate is just a piece of paper. But what God has already done is the graduation, but we at the same time want to acknowledge the hard work they put into it and a God's hand upon their lives. And uh, so I'm going to call their names. They're not all here. Uh, some, are, um, uh, some have left. You know, some are from different states and have gone back home, and so we'll have to send them the certificate. But uh, some are here tonight. So as I call your name, if you're here, uh, come on up. Leilani Bolin. Keith Carpenter. Let's, let's hold the applause till it's all done, then we can pray and applaud and shout and hoot and throw things at them. Money. Keith Carpenter. Elizabeth Edwards. Jessica Fickbaum. Lee Galassini. Chris Geddes. Alan Gross. Patricia Lindsay. Danny Lujan. Greg Martz. Karen Moya. Leslie Owens, Montana Rickett, David Schneider, Colin Scroggins, Zachary Sharp, Scott Smith, Michael Solecki, Kara Sowers, Jeremiah Sutton, and Jennifer V. Hill. All right. All right. This is the future of world evangelism right here. We're proud of each of you. We thank God for your contribution. Not only have we spent time in instructing them, but they have helped so much around the fellowship as part of their uh, training through this last year. They have served the body. They've learned how to serve. They've learned the joy of service. And uh, once you learn that, then life takes on a whole new complexion because you look for ways to serve others. You look for ways to serve the Lord. And there's purpose in life. And so we thank God for each one of them. Let's pray now for them. Father, we are thankful that you have commissioned these men and women that they have devoted themselves to study. They have carved time out of their schedule for a, a whole year to listen, to learn, to take in, and then also to give out, to learn how to serve. You have called us to serve. In fact, you were the greatest example of a servant and said we should do likewise. Father, we pray that this would just be the beginning that now you would do even greater exploits than they have imagined. As you have strengthened their walk, as you have invested areas of discipline and learning into their lives, we pray, Father, that just like rivers of living water flowing from them, that that which you have put in would flow from them to others' lives and you would multiply what you've invested in them. Fill each, Father, with your Holy Spirit. Enable and empower. We're so thankful and we're excited to see what you're going to do through their lives as they now influence others. Bless them in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Moses gave several fairly lengthy speeches to a new generation of Israelites, and it was all a mandatory appearance. They all had to sit there and listen to this, 34 chapters of it. And um, we have it a lot easier. Uh, You won't listen to me give five messages tonight. You won't listen to me give 34 chapters worth of information, thank God. But you will hear about an hour lesson. And so we ask you, it's not mandatory, you won't lose your salvation if you can't stay for the whole uh, thing, but we ask that you would be sensitive enough to everyone else who's sitting around you not to move around, not to leave before it's over, uh, because we feel that attention should be given to every portion of the Word of God. doesn't matter if it's Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms, the Pentateuch, Revelation, it's all important. God has a message in it, and we believe that some portion of it, God is speaking to some individual, and so it is a holy time. It is not a free-for-all. We ask people to make a decision when they come here to sit through the entire message. If that is too tall of an order for you to fill, as we pray for this message, you could slip out the back, and then you wouldn't disturb anyone. But once the service begins, we ask you to remain seated. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the the sheer privilege that we have to hear your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have Bibles in our hands. So many people in other countries do not. Thank you for the availability of teaching and preaching and books and radio and Christian television. To whom much is given, much shall be required. And we accept that responsibility tonight to learn and then to apply. Thank you, Father, for the hunger that's represented by so many people who have come out tonight to listen to this message, to read through the book of Deuteronomy as a fellowship. We pray that you'd bless them, reward those who diligently seek you. We also pray, Lord, that those who will hear this message by tape or live over the radio right now would also be touched in a particular area of their life. We, we look for your Holy Spirit to just do that comprehensive work. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Moses is 120 years old. He has left a legacy. He's trained up a new generation of young men and women who love God and are willing to obey him and go into the land. He has written five books called the Torah, the Law, the Pentateuch, that will be passed down and recited and become sort of the Magna Carta for the rest of Israel's history. So what a great life he has lived. But now he's ready to retire. 120, he's lived a good long life. He's still in fairly good shape, as we'll read tonight. But the Lord is decommissioning him and commissioning Joshua to take over for him. One of the things we discover about Moses when we read these last chapters of his life and the last acts of Moses and the last time that God speaks to him face to face while on this earth is that Moses faces his age and death in a very mature way. He's not afraid to say, I'm old. He's not afraid to say, I'm 120. He admits his age. He admits that he's close to death. Age bothers a lot of people. People are afraid of its effects. People are afraid of its wrinkles, of the gray hairs. Witness the amount of products that are sold every year to change those features as we get old. We don't like to face it. We're wearing out. The tent is one day going to be no good. We're going to trade it in. And my philosophy is, you know, 
Like my son looked at my hair the other day. He goes, Dad, you ought to do something about your gray hair that's coming out on the sides. I said, I earned every one of them. <laughs> and I think, you know, why try to look younger so that when you die, people go, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. He looked, you know, 30, when in reality he was, you know, uh, much older. <laughs> Notice I didn't want to give an age there. I've learned to be tactful. <laughs> Moses says he's 120. He must have shown the signs of age, and yet, at the same time, he had his vigor, it says in the Word of God. You don't need to be afraid of it. Some people are afraid of a feeling of usefulness, a feeling of guilt, or, or their body will be intact, but their mind won't. And it is a fear. Billy Graham was asked at a university. A student raised his hand and said, Dr. Graham, of all the things in life, what's the one thing that surprises you the most? He said, the brevity of it. It's so short. The second thing he said that surprised him is old age. He said, you know, we talk a lot about living and we even talk about death, but nobody talks much about old age. And consequently, there, it really does take, I think, a strong person to uh, endure those years well, to live gracefully through those years. It is difficult. I've witnessed so many people entering into those years, and it takes somebody who's strong. There's a poem I heard. Um, I like my new bifocals. My dentures fit just fine. My hearing aids is turned up all the way, but Lord, how I miss my mind. <laughs> I think that's probably one of the greatest fears we have when we get to a point where we're unable to think clearly and act correctly. But God preserved Moses, did great things with him. And, by the way, as we mentioned last time, his best years were after 80. That's where he received the call into the ministry. So see if you're thinking about, well, I want to go to the school of ministry, but I think maybe I'm a little too old. You are not. We'll accept anybody even past 80. And if you, you're thinking, now that I'm 80 and I've lived a good life and I'm ready to, uh, you know, really get serious about serving the Lord, boy, we'd like to take you. Case in point is, is Moses. Uh, there was a survey taken, by the way, of people over 95 years of age. And one of the questions asked is, if you could live life all over again, what would you do? And it was an open-ended question. People wrote several things, but three answers kept recurring. Number one, people said they would risk more. They'd try more things. They wouldn't be so safe. They would risk more than they risked before. Um, secondly, they'd reflect more. They would risk more, but at the same time, they wouldn't be so overly busy that they weren't able to think through and reflect on what is important, priorities. And the third thing they said they would do is do more of the right kind of things that would have a lasting impact after they die. In other words, rather than spending their life, they would invest their life into something that out, out would, would outlive themselves. They would invest more correctly with their time. Well, I think Moses did a good job of his life. And verse 9, this is where we really pick up from where we left off last week. So Moses wrote this law and delivered it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, saying, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, at the Feast of Tabernacles, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear, that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law, that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. 
Notice it says Moses wrote this law. There is a big controversy among certain scholars that wonder, did Moses really write these books? And there's a theory that's espoused in certain camps in certain universities called the Graf-Wellhausen theory, based on two German scholars, the Graf-Wellhausen theory. And this theory says that Moses didn't write what he said he wrote and what Jesus said he wrote and what Paul said he wrote. Moses didn't write it. The theory is that the books of the Torah, the historical books, the first five books of Moses, came into publication, were written about a little before 400 B.C. The reasoning, they say, is that writing wasn't invented at the time of Moses. Well, you'd have a problem to say Moses wrote it if writing wasn't invented. Enter the archaeologists who in their digs say not only did writing exist at the time of Moses, it existed well before the time of Moses, and they have the documents to prove it. So the Graf Wellhausen theory is thrown out of the window. <laughs> Moses wrote this law. In verse 10, Moses gives them a, a, a dictate, a commandment now. At the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of release, that means, remember, every seven years, debts were canceled. And so every seven years in the year of release, when all the debts were canceled, everything is forgiven. It's a year of forgiveness. It's a very special time. In the year of forgiveness, at the Feast of Tabernacles would be the gathering together of the people. Now remember, there were three feasts. We've discussed this several times in this book and other Pentateuchal books. Three mandatory feasts. There was Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And every male... Not every woman and child, but every male had to appear in Jerusalem, those who were within a certain distance to the temple. They would go, and they would celebrate the feast. Women didn't have to go, children didn't have to go, but often they wanted to go to partake of these feasts. However, it was mandatory that not only men, but everyone, every seven years, would take this long pilgrimage to Jerusalem. In the year of forgiveness... And they would stand there and listen to somebody reading either the book of Deuteronomy or the first five books of Moses, depending on how this, the law, is to be interpreted. Probably the book of Deuteronomy. They'd rehearse it, go through their history, go through the basic tenets of the law, and everybody had to listen to it. A couple reasons why this was important. Number one, copies of the scripture, like you and I have Bibles, didn't exist. They didn't have their own private Torah scrolls. They didn't have their brown or black or mauve colored, covered Bibles. And so uh, information was passed on by reciting it and memorizing it, hearing it over and over again, fathers and mothers teaching children or priests telling the people. So number one, it would serve to reinforce the commandments of God in an auditory way. Secondly, the idea of taking a pilgrimage was important, I think. They would have to leave their homes, their villages, their fields, their cattle, and trust the Lord with those things while they're gone. You know, they're just going to leave all their towns and come down to Jerusalem, and it would be reminiscent to them of what it was like in the wilderness, leaving Egypt, taking this long trip and trusting the Lord. And, and so just so they wouldn't forget, they'd have to take this trip, not so long as from Egypt to Canaan, but still a trip where they would trust the Lord. It would be the year of forgiveness, and it was a perfect setting in which to hear the law of God recited. It would do their hearts good. Then the Lord said to Moses, by the way, this is the last time we read of God giving Moses something to pass on to the people. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua Present yourself in the tabernacle of meeting, that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. We remember this is what took them through the wilderness, led them each step of the way, the Shekinah, the Shekinah, the presence of God. And so it's as if... 
it's saying God showed up. God gave a command, go get Joshua. God showed up, and everybody knew something is happening that's special. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. The pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners in the land where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. God says two things to Moses. Both are tantamount to the same message. Moses, you're going to die. Moses, you're going to rest with your fathers. Now we have two descriptions of the same event, death and resting with your fathers. One is straightforward. The other is a euphemism. God says, Moses, you're going to die. I believe in being straight. Um, if I went to a doctor and I had something terminal, I would really want the doctor to level with me. Now, I know that's controversial. Some say, no, you, you really want the doctor to soften the blow and not really to. I just prefer the honest truth. Skip, you're going to die. Now, I know I'm going to die. Someday, everybody will die. But if he says, within a month, you'll be dead, I want to know that because I've got some preparations and things I'd like to get done before that happens. The Bible often speaks this candidly about this event called death. Now, in this country, we don't like to call it death. We don't like to say, he died. We say, he passed on. Where? <laughs> I mean, he died. Oh, why didn't you say so? We are fond of taking death and kind of, sort of wrapping it around in a nice bow and ribbon and wrapping paper and uh, soft organ music and special parlors where people talk softly when you come in. And uh, in other countries, uh, they're a little more forthright about it. Death is talked about openly. Caskets are sold in the streets in many countries. Uh, in India, right where I stay in the last several times, there's a casket maker. And I always like to visit him. Uh, and he looks at me, the, the people in India are much shorter, uh, by and large, than I am. And so, you know, I go there and say, let me see your longest casket. <laughs> and they always say, we do not have a casket that is long enough for you, I'm sorry. We have to get two together. <laughs> but I like to visit them and look inside these caskets and remind me, one day this is my destination, physically. I'm going to die. And in countries like that, funerals are done out in the open. In fact, there's oftentimes a procession in the streets of India when somebody dies where the body is placed simply on a, on a cot where everybody can see and paraded through the streets so that you know this person has died and that people will make a, a public kind of a mourning, a public grief. And um, um, at the same time, God says you must die. In verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers. And now we have a euphemism for death. When you die, it appears physically as if you're at rest. That's the position of the body. Many times in the Old Testament, it will say, And he slept with his fathers, meaning he died and he's in the same place his forefathers are, at rest, dead, sleeping as it were. That's simply an expression for death because that's the appearance of the body. And that's why it's appropriate to call a graveyard a cemetery. It means a sleeping place. The appearance is, look at they're calm, they're sleeping. Now, they're not there. Their body is there, but they have vacated the premises. And so what is left is a body that is listless, that is motionless, that appears to be at rest. Remember in John 11 when uh, Lazarus dies and Jesus tells his disciples as he's going down toward the Jordan River, he said, Lazarus is asleep, and I must wake him. So the disciples said, well, if he's asleep, then he'll, he'll get better. He'll wake up. They thought Jesus was speaking about physical sleep. Jesus was speaking about death. And right afterwards, it says, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. He used the term sleep. 
but Lazarus is dead. Stephen, when he was stoned in the book of Acts chapter 8, he looked up to heaven and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and he fell asleep, Luke tells us. Then Paul writes in Thessalonians and talks about all those who are asleep in Christ will rise. It's important to recognize when the Bible talks about sleep, it doesn't mean soul sleep. It's speaking of the body only. It is a euphemism for death, but it's only the body that sleeps, the spirit, the soul, the real you, lives on and is conscious after death. The doctrine of soul sleep is not a biblical teaching. As soon as you die, if you're a Christian, you'll be in the presence of the Lord. Paul said in Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He said in the jail, the, the Roman jail, when he wrote to the Philippians, I'm in a strait or a quandary between two decisions. I want to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But for me to stay here is more needful for you. When you die, you're immediately in the presence of the Lord. If you're not a believer, you're not immediately in the presence of the Lord. You go to a place called Hades. It's written about in Luke chapter 16, a place of torment, conscious torment, as happened to Lazarus. Not Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, uh, but, um, excuse me, not Lazarus, but the rich man in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. He died and went to Hades, and he cried out in torment. So it's a place of consciousness after death. So it's only the body that sleeps. And, and, and it's, a good, it's a good description for a Christian who has served the Lord. Moses, you've served me. You're 120 years old. Your work is done. Man, it's time to rest. Now, when you rest, you get up. When I was a kid, my parents used to, I thought, punish me. They would say, it's the afternoon, it's time for your nap. And I think, I don't want to take a nap. I hate that. What did I do wrong? You didn't do anything wrong. You need your energy. Go take a nap. But to me, it was punishment. Now, if somebody says, go take a nap, oh, thank you. It's a reward. I like the idea of the this, this siesta in other countries. You just take a couple hours in the afternoon and just kick back and snooze. It's a reward. When you take a nap, you know you're going to wake up. When a Christian dies and you're saying, he's sleeping, he's going to get up. In fact, he really already did get up in the spirit. One day his body will rise, however, and be resurrected. So you must die, and then in verse 16, you will rest with your fathers. God predicts the disobedience of the nation once again. And he says what will happen, verse 17, Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them and will hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them. So they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods. Now therefore... Write down, get this, this song for yourselves, plural, that is, both Moses and Joshua had to collaborate and write a song, and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them, they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be, when many evils and troubles come upon them, that this song will testify against them as a witness. For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants, for I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them into the land which I swore to give them. It's interesting that Moses was not only a strong leader, he was not only raised in all of the splendor of Egypt. He was not only a prophet of God, not only a leader who spoke to the Lord face to face, but he becomes a songwriter at the end of his life. You know, what a commandment. Joshua, Moses, Moses especially, I've got one last job for you. I know you're old, you're 120, you're going to die. I want you to write a song. Now, he may have thought, 
I'm a military man. I, I don't write songs. I'm not the creative sort. Yet, yet that was his commission, to work with Joshua on a tune. Music has always influenced people. It's one of the great voices of every culture. In fact, every new generation seeks to express itself musically in new ways. And it's interesting to watch those new ways surface. And it's interesting, too, that every time the new generation seeks to express itself, the previous generation doesn't like the expression. Now, be honest. The expression that your kids are making today with the songs and the music, you think, that's not music. When I was a kid, that was music. But I bet if you recall what your parents said about your music, it was the same thing. Now, of course, Moses being 120 years old, the kind of song that he would write may not be considered a contemporary song among the younger generation, but, you know, who could argue this is God's song? He told me to write it. This is what you get. But music has always influenced every generation, and it was always prominent in Israel in their history and in their worship. When they crossed the Red Sea, there was a song that was written with timbrels and dancing. When David brought in the ark to Jerusalem, there was the commissioning of musical artists, songwriters, musicians. In fact, David later on commissions and pays full-time on staff 288 musicians to come up with songs to make it sound hot when you'd come into the temple to worship. Then there was Jehoshaphat leader of Israel's army. One day the Ammonites, the Moabites, uh, come against the armies of Israel down at En Gedi, and he gets wind of it. And so he humbles himself, cries out to God, and, and he bows down and worships himself. Then he commissions a bunch of musicians. In fact, they go first in the battle. They're the first ones to march. Now, A, uh, it could be that Jehoshaphat didn't think much of the musicians and thought to get rid of them by putting them as the target. And I don't think that was it. Or B, he knew the secret and the inspiration of worship to the armies of Israel. And so the musicians and the singers began the battle march by saying, Praise the Lord, His mercy endures forever. Second Chronicles chapter 20. And they marched off to battle. And when they praised the Lord in music, God, it says that God ambushed the Moabites and the Ammonites and gave Israel victory. And so songs were always prominent in Israel. They're prominent in every culture, from the national anthem to commercials. If you want to sell something, come up with a jingle, a song. It'll work its way into the gray matter of people, and they'll be singing and, you know, if we were to go around the room tonight and think of little jingles you've heard on television, it'd be an interesting night, so we won't do that. But we all remember certain jingles, right? Advertisements on television. You asked for it, you got it. Toyota, good. Well, some of you didn't remember that. I'm surprised. Maybe I'm dating myself. I don't know. It's an old commercial. So write down the song. I, I heard an interesting story about some missionaries in Nigeria. They were building a mission station. They were Western missionaries. They assembled the materials. They assembled the builders. The local people all gathered on the day. Everything was in place, but nobody was working. The sun rose. Nobody was working. Hours passed by. Nobody was working. And uh, finally, you know, with the Western mindset, the head missionary came up to some of the indigenous peoples and said, when are we going to build? Time is passing. And the representative of the tribe said, I don't know, but something is delaying the musician. He said, the musician? We're building a mission station. But he didn't know that in that culture, there, a musician comes into a certain beat of the log and other instruments. It sets a pace, it sets a beat, and the people work to the beat of the music. You do the same thing sometimes. You'll turn on the radio or you put in, I see people working out or jogging, and they put little headsets in, and they're running or biking to the beat of the music. 
it influences people. And uh, this was to influence the children of Israel. It was a song about their history. They were uh, to recite it in years to come. But notice verse 21. God says, I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I brought them to the land which I swore to give them. Here's a song. Put it in their mouths. Have them sing it. Pass it on generation after generation. It'll be in the top 40 of Israel. But that song, as they sing it, will bring to remembrance the covenant, which will also bring to remembrance their failure to keep the covenant. And I know. I know what kind of people they are. I know their kinds of hearts. And I know that they're going to disobey. Even before they do it, I predict it's going to happen. When Billy Sunday, the famed evangelist, years, this is of course before Mordecai Ham, before Billy Graham, when Billy Sunday was holding a crusade in a town back east, he wrote a letter to the mayor of the city asking that he give, Billy, he give him a list of any special people in that town that have some special problems or sins that require prayer and, and um, uh, dealing with. And Billy Sunday was really surprised when the mayor sent him back an entire city directory, which would be tantamount to a phone book today. Everybody was listed in it. Everybody in this city needs prayer. Everybody needs help. Everybody is going through something. And God says, I know the inclination of these people. And so this song will serve to remind them. Therefore, Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the children of Israel. And he inaugurated Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land which I swore to them, and I will be with you. So it was when Moses had completing the writing, completed the writing of the, the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law. That would probably be the book of Deuteronomy. Put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. So they would have this book, this scroll or tablets perhaps, maybe a stone, and set it next to the Ark. Now inside the Ark was what? The Ten Commandments. So you had the book of Deuteronomy next to it, inside the Ten Commandments, along with Aaron's rod that budded and that pot of manna that was kept uh, as a memorial throughout the generations of Israel. But this law set next to it as a reminder. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? So he's kind of laying into him. Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your offices that I may speak these words in their hearing and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days, because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. And now the song is given to us, the introduction of it, verse 30. Moses spoke in the hearing of all the congregation of Israel the words of this song until they were ended. This is sort of like their national anthem right now. Now, it doesn't stay their national anthem. Uh, other songs will be introduced in their history as time goes on. If you go to Israel today and you go, Hey, sing me that song of Moses. They'll go, Huh? Now, in certain synagogues, they may be able to sing certain portions of it, but there are new reflections in every generation. You remember in the Psalms, more than once, David said, Sing a new song unto the Lord. Sing a new song unto the Lord. I love hearing musicians come up with new forms of expression of worship. I love the old ones too, but I really love the new ones. And so let me encourage any musicians in this room who are listening. If you're a musician, if God has given you the, the craft, the ability to compose, write some new worship songs that we might sing them, that we might pass them on to other fellowships. And I think it's important to have a continual flow of new songs. And as you know, it's sort of our practice to bring up not only new songs, but every Sunday we like to bring an old song, an old hymn, to sort of tie the past with the present and the future. And some people are resistant 
to the new song. You keep te teaching us these new songs, and you know, we, want, we want the old songs. I like the old songs too. This is the way I look at it. When I sing a hymn, much as I love the words, and they're filled with such a rich theology and doctrine and beauty and depth, I am basically singing an expression. I'm singing about what God did probably 300 years ago. And it's a great expression. It's a good reminder. Hey, God worked 300 years ago. God was moving in the lives of musicians 300 years ago. But if there's not a new song, what we are saying is that God stopped working 300 years ago. And when we sing new songs, we're saying God's still at work. Fresh expressions of praise and worship. Don't be resistant to it. Undoubtedly, some will. Don't worry about them. Move on. It happens in every generation. When Dwight L. Moody and Ira D. Sankey started doing revivals and crusades, and, and uh, uh, it was back in Glasgow, Scotland, they went from Chicago to Glasgow in the late 1800s. And they started singing their new style of worship, which today is, are the old hymns. The people in Scotland said, that's steam kettle music. That's what they called it, steam kettle music. It's just racket, making a, a noise. Because the people in Scotland in those days were used to only singing the Psalms of David paraphrased. They were resistant to anything else. But then they started noticing something interesting happening in Chicago and New York and Glasgow. And that is, the songs that were sung at the Crusades they started to be sung around factories and offices and homes and streets. Churches were resistant to them, but the common person caught on to the tune so well. I like that tune. And it started revolutionizing the common man, the common churchman. It started revolutionizing worship. Once a young boy went to his father and said, Dad, the songs at church are boring. His dad got angry at him. He said, well... That's almost blasphemy. How dare you, young whippersnapper. If you think you're so smart, why don't you write some new ones? And so young Isaac Watts, who wrote Joy to the World, Away in a Manger, or that was Luther, uh, Joy to the World, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and others, he decided to write some new songs to revolutionize his day. But those are older songs now. So Moses writes this new song. They have to learn it, but there will be new songs that come on later on as generations pass. First four verses form the introduction, and then the song unfolds. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth. Let the words of my mouth, let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender herb, as showers on the grass, for I proclaim the name of the Lord. Isn't that a beautiful introduction? And isn't that a beautiful description of what the Word of God is like? Let my words, or let my teaching drop as the rain and speech distill as the dew. In other words, let what I say penetrate your heart, refresh your soul, stimulate your heart to worship the Lord. Just like dew, it's quiet. It's not like rain. Sometimes rain, you hear it. And he mentions rain, but dew is pretty silent, just kind of appears. But it has the power to revive and refresh. The Word of God can revive, refresh, stimulate, encourage your heart. There are those who are what I call spiritual thrill-seekers. They're not content unless there's something dramatic. Forget the dew. Forget the gentle rain. We want power. We want lightning from heaven. And so they'll try to work people up in their meetings into a frenzy and, you know, into, you know, the deep breathing and uh, shaking and laughing and barking and moaning and all sorts of interesting forms of behavior. They're not content with a Bible study. What good is that? There's no power in that. 
And so they'll hop around from experience to experience, whether it's the airport vineyard in Toronto or the Pensacola Revival or Brownsville, Texas, all of the odd fringe kind of experiences. And they'll say, it's God, it's God, it's got to be God. But they're only content in going where that kind of fire burns. Sort of like Elijah. If you remember, Elijah sort of expected the dramatic when he was down in the Sinai and the angel of God said, go in the cliff of the rock and God will be there. So he stood in the cliff of the rock and a great wind tore through the rocks, but God wasn't in the wind. And an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And a fire, but God wasn't in the fire. But it said God spoke in a still, small voice. Now, perhaps Elijah didn't expect that. He's a dramatic man. He saw dramatic miracles happen through his hands. And so he's there going, okay, God, speak. (laughs) That's it. Some of the greatest works of the Holy Spirit are like gentle rain and like dew that is just refreshing and it appears and revives. It's unseen but it's very, very powerful. It's a still, small voice. It could be a simple Bible study, and a word could be spoken to a certain person, and it's like, bam, that's to my heart. That person may go out and serve the Lord on the mission field, go to the school of ministry, go start a church somewhere, go help restore a marriage. Great works can be done by the power of the Word of God. And I think it's just a beautiful description. Now, some people will say, God never speaks to me. Perhaps it's because you're like Elijah. You you sort of want the Cecil B. DeMille episode. If it's not that dramatic, then you say, God didn't show up. God could be speaking to your heart right now. It could be a still, small voice, but a powerful move of the Holy Spirit. And I often hear this, we got to get back to the book of Acts. Look at the book of Acts, filled with miracles. Granted, granted. You could read the book of Acts in a very short period of time, and you may infer that a miracle happens once every, what, 10, 15 minutes? Maybe even every five minutes. You're reading it, wow, miracle, wow, miracle. The book of Acts covers a time span of about 30 years. There's 30, 31 miracles in the book of Acts. It's about one a year. Oh, really? It doesn't sound that dramatic when looked at in that kind of a, perspective. And by the way, if you really say you want the book of Acts, do you really? Are you ready for it? All of it? Like Ananias and Sapphira? If there's any hypocrisy in the church, God will strike you dead on the spot. Are you ready for the book of Acts? I don't know about that. But I think when you say that, you're saying it very selectively and often very naively. And I just love this portion of scripture. Beautiful perspective as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. What a great contrast, really. God is a rock. Now, Israel is not a rock. Maybe a dirt clod. Maybe dust blowing in the wind. Very unstable, very unfaithful. In contrast to a God who is mighty, strong, a refuge, always faithful, always consistent. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you, When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam and set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel, for the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, in a wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. This is a pretty long song and we haven't even got through half of it yet. Keep in mind they had to memorize it. And they had to sing it all the time. And uh, by the way, this was not that uncommon. Many ancient peoples memorized songs or even legal treaties. 
you may be surprised. What's the longest psalm? Psalm 119, what, 172 verses? It's acrostic of the alphabet, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, all of the Hebrew alphabets. There's sections that follow that. That psalm was memorized, all of it, ascribing greatness to the law, the scripture, the word of God. And so it wasn't that uncommon. You know, they didn't have movies, television, radio. They had time on their hands, and they would memorize stories and retell the stories in songs and in poems. Verse 11 and 12 is a beautiful picture of God. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings, so the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. The Hebrew word for eagle is the word nesher. It speaks of a griffin eagle. It's indigenous to Israel. In fact, I had a picture of it today. I wanted to get it on the computer, but I couldn't get a way to scan the slide. I took one this last time. It's an interesting bird. And God says, like an eagle stirs up its nest. Over in Exodus, God says, I was like an eagle that cared for its young. And oftentimes, God is pictured as an eagle. And God's people are pictured as baby eaglets, which I find interesting. There's some characteristics about eagles you may be interested in. Number one, the nesher, this griffin eagle, builds its nest high up in inaccessible places. It's out of the way in the heights of the canyons, in the heights of the cliffs or the mountains. The mother eagle will build the nest for protection, and for dependence. There's the little eaglet stranded. There's no 7-Eleven around. There's no McDonald's around. It's not a zoo, so somebody's feeding this thing an ongoing steady daily diet. They're up there, out of the way, in the nest, and if mother doesn't feed them, they're dead. That's a picture of Israel taken from Egypt. Now remember, they missed the garlic and the leeks and the meat and all of the things that they said they had in Egypt. And God took them and delivered them through the Red Sea out into the desert in a place where there was no other provision but God. There was no other food but what God would give them, manna from heaven. If God didn't feed them, they'd be dead. Secondly, a mother eagle, a nesher, a griffin eagle, is very protective. It has a, a heavy beak strong hands with huge talons, and it's a bird of prey. It's ready for a fight. If you ever decide to go and find an eagle's nest and play with the babies or take one home, just make sure you're born again, because <laughs> it'll probably be your last fight, and you'll lose. Very protective, and the eagle can spot what's going on, can spot the nest even being a couple miles away. God led the children of Israel through the Red Sea, out into the wilderness, and as soon as they were out there, as soon as, soon as they were going toward the Red Sea, the Egyptians started saying, let's go pursue them. God took them out of Egypt and brought them into his nest, so to speak, his protection. And so you got the Egyptians saying, let's chase them, let's pursue them, let's kill them. What did they do? They messed with God's nest. And like a good mother eagle would do, swept down and destroyed the enemies trying to get at her young. What is interesting, too, is the way, thirdly, mother eagles teach their young how to fly. And it says, as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovering over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up. It's a picture of God with his people. Eagles mature very slowly. Isn't that good to know? Does that comfort you a little bit? Three years for that eaglet to become even ready to fly. It's a slow maturity. And when it's time to fly, the way the mother eagle does it is she just stirs up the nest. She flutters and basically kicks the young out. Lesson number one is like this. Eaglet kicked out, eaglet does nosedive, eaglet goes into tailspin irrecoverably, and before the eaglet is about to smash face first on the ground, that mother eagle comes down and spreads up its wings, bearing up that young and 
bringing it up again. And as that little heart's going, boom, 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 boom. <laughs> the mother eagle can say, you passed your first lesson. How often have you felt, I'm going to hit the ground, this is it, this is the last trial, I'm dead meat. Only for God to, with his strong arm, preserve you somehow, maybe the last moment. But he was there, he was faithful. Also, I think this gives insight into trials. God, why are you doing this? Stirring up the nest. Why would you let this happen? You need to learn to mature. You've got to learn to use your wings sometimes. And so God brought them out into the wilderness and tried them time after time after time to mature them, to get them to depend on God. But even when it seemed like there was no deliverance, God would provide a way. He made him ride in the heights of the earth that he may eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle and milk of the flock with the fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan, northern Israel to the east of the Jordan, and goats with the choicest wheat and you drank wine, the blood of grapes. But Jeshurun, that's the Hebrew for the upright one. It's a synonym for Israel, an interesting synonym. God says, you're going to fail, you're going to blow it. I'm going to call you my upright one. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of grace. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick. You are covered with fat. Uh, you know... That's not a compliment. You couldn't get away with saying that to your spouse or your parents or your friends. You're thick, man. You, you really grew fat. But God can get away with it. And God isn't speaking of their diet as much as using a metaphor for you in your abundance when you're in the land. And this is often what happens when people are in abundance. They don't need to trust God anymore. They don't need to see him as their rock anymore. After all, something happens, I've got wherewithal to pay my bills and things are all right. You, you, you grow lazy, apathetic. You're not trusting. And it was a prediction of their future condition. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons... Not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Is it not interesting that instead of just calling them little idols or little statues or uh, uh, one of many religious systems, God says, when you worship those idols, Baal and Ashtoreth and others, you were worshiping demons. That's what false gods really are. That's what Baal is. That's what any gods of the New Age are. That's what uh, the um, mediums are when they say, I've got a spirit that I'm contacting that is a powerful spirit, and you can get in contact with this spirit and tell you about. All that is is demonology. There's a demon behind all those false gods. And when people pray to them, they're praying to demons. Demon worship. In Egypt and in Mesopotamia, there was the belief system that when you construct an idol, the spirit of that god resides in that stone or in that piece of wood. So that whatever you do to that object, the spirit, the god itself, will be able to perceive it and to feel it. So in uh, countries like Egypt, Mesopotamia, they would wash their little idols, they would dress them, you know, put new fashion statements on their little gods, little hat one day, little purse another day, and thinking the god is, you know, enjoying this. They would put food, bowls of food, at the base of these gods, thinking that the spirit of the god would itself be able to get energy from it and would strengthen the god's power. So I'm helping my god out. Weak gods, if you have to help them out that way. In India today, they still believe that statues of... Uh, uh, Kali and uh, Shiva and others, uh, that the statues, the God itself is inhabiting that, uh, that image. So it's uh, idol worship, it's demon worship. 
And, and, and interesting, God says, the gods they did not know to new gods, new arrivals, you know, new, new kids on the block, new gods that would come from different nations. Oh, we got a whole new set of gods here. You're the new gods on the block, new arrivals. That your fathers did not fear of the rock who begot you. You are unmindful. You have forgotten the God who fathered you. And every missionary who goes into any country today has to confront the gods of that culture at some point in time. And they have to pray that God will give them keys to unlock the culture. In um, World Vision magazine, put out the March edition, 1997, there was an article about Ethiopia. The Ashan River that goes to Ethiopia, by the banks of it, there's this huge, huge tree that covered a good chunk of land. It had been there for years. And it was a superstitious tree, and as you know, Ethiopia has seen much famine, and many people have died. And, um, but they would always trust and pray to this tree. Adults would come by and kiss it. They would speak reverently of the tree, never put the tree down. They would teach their children that that tree uh, is what delivered our people in the past, and he will deliver us again. In 1989, when Christian relief organizations came to Ethiopia to better the land and give food supplies, they noticed the people's reverence to this tree, while at the same time the relief organizations were putting in irrigation systems, giving them uh, water in their land, uh, raising crops. The soil began to be productive again. Who did people ascribe this answered prayer to but this tree? So the Christians knew, we've got a problem as long as this tree's around. What do we do? And somebody remembered the scripture in... Uh, Luke chapter 17, if you have the faith as the grain of mustard seed and you say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and cast into the sea, it'll, it'll do it. So they said, let's pray against the tree. Well, they did it for about six months. And the villagers found out, these Christian missionaries who have come with food and supplies are praying against our tree. Now they put up with them because they're giving them so much food but they're praying against our tree. Within six months, the tree started to dry up, the leaves started to fall off, and eventually the tree capsized and fell into the river. The villagers surrounded the Christians and said, your God killed our tree. And about a hundred of them put their faith in Jesus Christ because they saw his power was greater than their tree, who didn't give them anything. But they realized these guys are praying to demons. God, give us a key to this culture, and God gave it to them. And the gospel was furthered. Time's just about up. Just getting into it. Let's finish down to verse 22. When the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. And um, we'll finish up next time. And uh, I said that last time. <laughs> we'll continue next time in our study in the book of Deuteronomy. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. God warned them and said, you're acting foolishly. You're raising up idols. You're going to raise up idols. You're going to worship these idols. They're really not gods. So what I'm going to do, since you're acting so foolishly in idol worship, and, and basically you are declaring, I love idols. I'm going to send you into a nation that is so packed full of idols and acts even more foolishly 
than you are now to give you the full of what you are really saying you want in hopes that a light will go on in your heart and you'll cry out to me in anguish. And the day that you do, Deuteronomy chapter 30 says, I'll bring you back. It's always beautiful. As much as God anticipates their failure, God has provided their return. And always says, there'll be forgiveness. In the day that you cry out, there'll be forgiveness. And I'll return you, I'll restore you. Israel takes step after step after step after step after step away from God. God says there's one step to come back. Isn't that great? God didn't say, you want to come back to me? Crawl on your hands and knees. Retrace all those steps. God just says, just turn right there. And so God said to the prophet, turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die? Are you worshiping something other than the Lord God? Is your deliverer is your object of affection and worship anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Say, so, well, you know, I don't have any little carvings that I bow down to. A lot of things can take the place of God. They can be things you drive. They can be things you live in. They can be things you wear. They can be you. So whatever it is that's standing in the way between you and God... Know that it's one step back to God tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for the faithfulness of your promises. You know the inclination of men's hearts. You know that men naturally have bent away from you and naturally turn away from you. And yet you appeal to the heart, you appeal to the mind, the will, and you basically beg people to return for their own good. You always tell us it's just that one step back. I, I pray for anyone who might be here tonight who has taken one step or two steps or 150 steps away from you. They would take that one necessary step of turning around, what we call repentance. Turning around, turning around in their thinking, in their lifestyle, and turn to you and ask for forgiveness. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. And we ask, amen. And we ask, amen. And we ask. 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 Amen. And we ask.